What is up, designers, and welcome back to the Grand Design Podcast. Huzzah, the the podcast is about taking the ideas in your head and pushing them out into the world in the form of mass movements. Um, We got a real special episode today. Um, It's Dallas, if if you don't know who I am already, the host of this podcast. And uh, today I want to talk about the ideas that I put out in the first 18 episodes of this podcast and how... Where before, I assumed, I feel like a lot of listeners to this podcast, if they're on this journey already, assumes, like, because it's rational that the ideas were 100% valid, I want to make this episode to say a lot of, you know, particularly about the two paradigms that I talk about the most. The ideas that I put out in the first few episodes of this podcast were only partially true. And this was brought to my attention by actually two stories, one from Owen Cook and one from Russell Brunson. That had recently like uh, resurfaced, I guess, as I was going through their podcasts and their YouTube videos. Okay, and so the two paradigms that I'm going to talk about in their new relation, as I understand them, and you already know these two paradigms if you listen to the old, you know, the earlier episodes of this podcast. The two paradigms that I want to talk about is the self-serving, competitive paradigm, the competitive mindset, and the uh, what I thought to be a stark opposite, the collaborative and empathetic mindset. The whole ideology with the first 18, I don't know what episode, 18, 17 episodes was this. You know, you cannot build a mass movement, which the vehicle for mass movements in the modern era in a capitalistic society is usually a business. You cannot build a mass movement from the self-serving and competitive mindset. Okay, so what is the competitive mindset? Just a quick rundown if you haven't heard the other episodes, but I seriously recommend you do go back and listen to them. The competitive mindset and a self-serving mindset is the me, me, me mindset. The mindset that wants to build a movement or wants to build anything, an entire sole purpose of your life is to serve yourself, to increase your status, to make sure you survive, to get the rent paid, to get the money, you know, to get your money, to make sure you live in luxury. It's all about accumulating value and taking it in. It's about consuming value, okay? And uh, if you listen to the first four episodes of this podcast, you understand that that was my entire mindset. And this is the sole reason why initially I thought you had to discard this mindset in order to build mass movements, because that was my experience. You know, I was trying to build this business, this memoir launch from um, this competitive and self-serving frame of mind. And so I was trying to build a movement based around me, based to, to bolster my image, to bolster the way I felt, to bolster my wealth, to serve me. Okay. Now, how many of you feel like that right now? Raise your hand if you feel like that or blink twice. Do something. If you feel like you want to build a business so that you can be rich, it's nothing wrong with feeling like that. I feel like that's where everyone starts. Oh, I want to build this business so my parents love me. I want to build this business or be a rapper or be a star so that everybody loves me and everybody knows my name. That was the feeling that was driving me for the longest time. But I said, and perhaps mistakenly, I want to analyze this a little more and also leave it as an open-ended question in this podcast, I mistakenly said that you can't build a mass movement tainted by this consumerism, you know, this consumerist ideology, this self-serving competitive mindset. And because it had led me to a dead end where I was in some serious trouble because I was making decisions on the basis of what I wanted, okay? And so let's say you have a business, like I was trying to build, build this stupid business. And because I want the most money, because I want, you know, because I'm worried solely about me, I can't give the best deal to the people I partner with. I can't give the best deal to the people I'm, you know, I might employ to help me out. You know, I can't give the best deal to the client because I'm, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this freaking work. I just want the money. I'm not thinking about them. I'm not thinking about helping them. Okay. And so the statement I made around this in the first few episodes was you can either build a mass movement, you can be a face, uh, one of many faces in a thriving movement, or you can be the only face in a dimly lit ma- you know, a dimly lit movement. That was the statement I made. And so I want to analyze whether that statement is all the way true, false, or just partially true. Okay? And so some of the things that I was, you know, so for example, like let's say um, I'm writing a book for a client. I would go and outsource, you know, the writing to somebody else. And I would pay them like $100 because I want to keep the $900. I want to keep the bulk of the money for myself. And what would happen because I'm giving bad deals because I'm only serving myself was they would be like, okay, this guy's cheat me. I don't want to do the deal. They would turn me back bad work. 
So the client wouldn't accept it. They would run off with the work. They would disappear entirely. There were a lot of things that were happening because I was self-serving, because I was coming from a competitive mindset. I was even competing with the people, like the people who were writing the client. I'm like, I want to be better and bigger than all you. You might treat me bad, but one day you're going to be a client that I don't even remember. That was the mindset that I was coming from. And why do I feel like, okay, mass movements can't exist from that frame of mind? They can't exist from that paradigm. This was the basis of the entire first four episodes, if you know. I felt that way because it's like, what is the core idea of all business in the first place? Okay? The core idea of business is that businesses solve problems for the world. Businesses solve problems for people. So how is it that you can solve someone's problem when you're only worried about solving your problems? The competitive self-serving mindset is a mindset I believe is encompassed by a majority of society. Because the majority of society is going through a lot of things. The majority of society is struggling. The majority of society, I think 74% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And so it's not wrong to feel self-serving. It's not wrong to feel competitive. It's not wrong to want to be at the top of the bunch, to be at the top of the pile. It's actually a natural thing. You know, there's a thing called the Maslow's hierarchy, which is a really a, a, a roadmap of all human motivation. And so you're motivated by, you know, um, your motivation exists based on your needs and your wants that are already met. Okay, and so the bottom of the pyramid, the very, very level, very lowest level of the pyramid of motivation is um, physiological needs. Okay, and so the way the pyramid works is that you have to meet the level, level under under the level that you're on in order to go to the next level. Okay, so the bottom level is physiological needs, right? And then so the next level after that is uh, safety needs. And so if you don't have your physiological needs met, which is food, water, things that will literally keep you alive, you you won't be able to get your you know you won't even consider or be worried about safety needs. Okay, and so in a world where a lot of people are worried about, oh, I don't have rent to be paid. I want to pay for food. Oh, how am I going to get gas money? How am I going to? How am I going to? How am I going to? How am I going to feed my family? All these different things. A lot of people aren't progressing up to the top of the pyramid, and it, which is where you began to transition to that collaborative, you know, and empathetic mindset. Okay, so the pyramid it goes from the bottom, physiological needs, needs that are self-serving, needs that are all about you, uh, all the way up to the top of the pyramid, which is um self-transcendence which literally means to transcend you know it it transcend beyond yourself to care about other people it's like if you're like a a caveman in the wild or something like that you're a caveman in the wild you're just worried if you're hungry you're just worried about oh i gotta i'll eat another person if i have to i'm i just gotta i just gotta eat you're not worried about anything else other than surviving or for the fact that you might die so a lot of society i feel like feels that way and i call that a state of unwellness you don't have you're not well because your needs are not met. And so self-serving competitive mindset is a symptom of being unwell. They call it scarcity mindset in some other ways. I mean, these mindsets aren't the exact same, but they're closely related. Okay? And so likewise, if you're like a caveman in the wild and you're like you're fed and you have food like for days in your shack behind you, suddenly you have enough mental ram cleared up because your mind's not like survive 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 your your primitive systems aren't really turned on you have enough ram like uh freed up where you can actually think like and consider like things beyond just physiological needs or safety needs like if you're good you're like you're thinking about like oh we want to party we want to have fun we want to enjoy we want to have companionship you are you, you start to process in your mind activities that have everything to do with other people you start to consider other people okay and so the second mindset that I want to transition to and talk about is uh, the collaborative mindset, which the collaborative mindset is where you are empathetic to other people, where you realize that, OK, I don't want everything to be all about me. My needs are met. What about other people? You start to feel and you'll see this a lot, man. I've written for uh, a few people, for different people. And a lot of these business people like uh since I write for them and I document their story, they start off at a place where they're just like, man, I want some money, I want some money. Is that something you feel? Is that something you've experienced? But then as they go on and they have some of these men, they get that money, they start to get that money and then they start to think like uh, the last lady I was working with, she wanted to build uh, like a youth sports facility in her old neighborhood. A lot of people transition to philanthropy as they go along because they become more and more well. They have their needs met more and more and more. So the point of business in the world is to solve problems for people. You cannot get paid in a business until you solve problems for people. But from a competitive, self-serving you know, standpoint, the only thing that's obsessing your brain is your problems. And that's why movements can't grow from that you know, frame of mind. It can't grow from that paradigm. 
Whereas a collaborative frame of mind where you're just worried about getting the best deal for everybody, you're suddenly in the perfect vehicle where it just happens to flourish because you're that type of person that structures deals in a way that you know, really raises everybody, makes everybody feel good, and helps everybody enjoy what they're experiencing, okay? And so my initial ideology was this. You have to transition for, you know, this is me hypothesizing, okay, just on the basis of observations from a lot of, and teachings from a lot of different people, is that you have to discard the competitive mindset in order to grow into the collaborative mindset and begin to get those ideas outside of your head and build them and blossom them into the world. I mean, even think about when you were children. I always go back to this example. When you tried to explain things to your family that you felt, but you're just so mad that they don't understand you. Because you want to, you know, you're coming almost from a place of, oh, I want to be the one that bought this idea. And then someone else brings the idea up and they understand them. And you get mad like, oh, it was my idea. That's indicative that it was all about your status. It was all about your ego. It was all about self-serving competitiveness. You didn't care about really bringing that information to other people. And so, like I said, my original ideology was that you have to discard the competitive self-serving mindset. But within this episode right here, because of some recent stories that were brought to my mind, as I said before, Russell Brunson's story that I'm going to tell you a little bit about and Owen Cook's uh, philosophy, I've realized that's true, but only partially. It's only partially. It's not true all the way, Okay. And I'm going to explain how it is both true and untrue in sort of a paradoxical way in this podcast episode. Life is balance. Your body and everything else always comes back to homeostasis. Life is dark and light. Light is yin and yang. One can't exist without the other. So how is it that a collaborative mindset, that paradigm, can exist without the opposite, the competitive and self-serving paradigm? These are the recent thoughts I've been having. I might stumble a lot in this episode. I might drag on like I have just now because uh, I haven't really unwound it all the way in my head yet. But I want to get right into explaining that to you. And so I'm going to cue the podcast theme music in a little bit. We're having an intro after 12 minutes of me going on and on and on and on. But I thought it was important to break that down. And so before this episode starts, I do want to say... If you enjoy these podcast episodes, let's get to get them to more people who can enjoy them just like you and I do. Because I enjoy this. Uh, I enjoy making it for you probably more than you enjoy listening to it. Um, so please, if you can, regardless of what platform you want, subscribe to this podcast. The iTunes, all these platforms, they boost pla- they, they boost podcast episodes, podcast episodes on the basis of how many subscribers they have and things like that. Also, I need you to rate and leave a little note under this podcast episode. Tell me what you thought about the episode or any other episodes of the podcast in general. Tell me about what you ate for lunch. Just tell me anything. Okay. Uh, if you can, leave something valuable for other people who, who will come and see this podcast in the future. And also, you know, I also have a lot of goodies and things like that in the podcast notes. Um, if you want to learn more about what I'm teaching with this podcast, there's a free book. All you do have to do is pay for shipping and handle it. It'll ship it out to you immediately. There's a free book that teaches you in a more clear and concise and structured way than I am right here. Um, a book where I based a lot of my ideologies and teachings off of. And the book is called Expert Secrets. And you can get that book once again for free. I don't know how long it's going to be available for free or any of that stuff. But you can get it for free right now in the show notes. Just go. It'll be a link right next to it. It'll be a title that says Expert Secrets. And it'll be a link right next to it. And you can lose that link. It'll bring you to Russell Brunson's website. Um, where he'll explain to you everything that's in the book, and you can use that link to buy the book for absolutely free of charge. It's an amazing book. I think it's the greatest book in all of, you know, one of the greatest books in all human history. Not greatest marketing book, not greatest book, you know, uh, business book. And I've been saying that, anybody even has been around me, I've been saying that before I promoted the book because I am promoting this book to you, believe it or not. But yeah, that's all I really have to say. I'm going to cue the theme music, and uh, I'm going to get right back to, to explaining why it is that discarding the competitive mindset isn't necessarily the way to go. All right. Well, I'll see you have the theme. You know, here's the theme music, uh, and I'll see you right after. How do people like us, the visionaries, the creatives, real people with real ideas, people who don't have mass budgets, platforms, or teams, and people who live in this noisy world dominated by internet gurus, influencers, and big brands, the people attempting to make a dream on our own dollar? How do we get our ideas to pierce through all the noise in not only a massive, but a massively profitable way? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Dallas, and this is Brand Design, the podcast about taking the ideas in your head, pushing them out into the world, and forming massive 
Oh. So, what is up designers and welcome back to the episode after the theme music has finally ended. I want to talk to you a little bit about those two mindsets, those two paradigms that we embody as human beings and you know how we react and how we treat the you know the 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 paradigms that we've left once we've progressed to the next. Okay? I remember it was only a few days ago, but this is not the first time I heard this podcast. Um this is probably the second or third time I heard this podcast. I've heard every one of Russell Brunson's podcasts. I'm a huge fan of this guy and his marketing secret show. I really think you should go listen to it, and I don't even get paid to say that right now. But um, look, man, a lot of people believe, oh, I want to push my idea out into the world in the form of a mass movement, right? And the best way to do that is to have a unique idea. People will flock to things that they haven't heard of yet. You create new markets, you know, whether it's a business, a product, an idea, it's all a market. Like school is a market and entrepreneurship is a market that branched out of that. Okay. Like Russell Brunson, websites was a market. It was the red ocean, the red ocean market, which means the original create your mainstream competitive market. And he branched out of that and he made sales funnels, which is a form of websites. Okay, not really a form of websites. It's the next evolution of websites. Okay, and a lot of people feel like when they, like ideas, like capitalism, a lot of people hate capitalism right now. And so they're branching out of that market, that red market, and they want like things like socialism or democratic socialism, whatever you want to call it. And so you see, a lot of people feel like if they have a unique idea that people haven't heard of that meets all the needs, with the benefits and features of the audience that hate the old idea, then people will eventually just flock to it, okay? Have you ever felt that way? Like, oh man, I discovered this thing, no one knows about it, it's super unique, and it is exactly what the people say they wanted. And you went to put that idea out into the world. How has that gone? It's a mystery, isn't it? How you know you do exactly what they want, you give them exactly what they want, completely new, unique, and no one ever buys. No one ever congregates to it. Why is that? Think about it. A lot of people are like, man, we hate capitalism. We just hate it so much. And Bernie Sanders come out. He comes out and he says, hey, everybody, we don't have to do this anymore. Wait, wait, wait. We're going to keep the old stuff. We're going to keep capitalism. But we're going to give you some more of what you want. Doesn't that sound good? 74% of Americans, I think, are living the check to check. He's like, doesn't that sound good? And everybody's like, no, we're going to vote Biden. You see what I mean? Like, why do things like that happen? Why is it that when you have a unique idea, it doesn't on its own create a new market? Why is that? So Russell Brunson had a similar experience to this. And I want to tell his story because, you know, I think it's important to really understand and configure like how, like what is, what is exactly the phenomenon that's going here, going on here. And so he has a company called ClickFunnels. He was even successful before ClickFunnels. Uh, I believe he had a, a million dollar business before ClickFunnels, was doing very well with that business. But his next idea after that was ClickFunnels. And ClickFunnels today has over 100,000 subscribers, okay? ClickFunnels is making over 150 million in revenue every year, which makes it, because it is a subscription service with recurring payments, a billion dollar company. ClickFunnels recently actually received this billion dollar valuation ClickFunnels is a monster. ClickFunnels is responsible for making over 800 new millionaires from scratch and like 50 deca millionaires from scratch. Really insane service, you know what I'm saying? So, and it's a unique idea. It's something that's different. But as we discussed before, is having a unique idea, is that the magic bullet that creates a market on its own? What most people don't know about ClickFunnels is that it is a juggernaut today. The community calls themselves funnel hackers. It is a blossom. It's a unicorn, as they call it. But ClickFunnels, despite being unique, the original mainstream market that it was born out of was the website market. Okay? And so people in the website market hated websites. They absolutely hated it. And at the very beginning of everything, Russell Brunson was one of those people. You see, the problem with websites is websites... Well, the difference between a website and a funnel. A website has multiple exits. A funnel 
pushes you in one direction. You can buy or you can back out. You know, and because of that, a, a funnel increases the revenue of your company, increases the amount that you're able to sell in a single sitting by like 10, 20, 30 million fold. Whereas a website, before, before uh, ClickFunnels was just a sales funnel builder, was existing, websites, like they didn't really help people sell. A lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people had websites, but they weren't really selling. Websites was a red ocean and there were no alternative. And there was a group, a cluster of people who absolutely hated websites because they didn't help them sell and they wanted a new alternative. And, you know, Russell Brunson obviously was one of those people. He used websites, well, he used sales funnels for his earlier business, but he had experience with websites before. And because of, he realized that, okay, this old market hates the vehicle that it's in. This is one of the, this is one of the um, components of a mass movement, by the way, and this is why we're talking about this. It's the new opportunity. You know, you want to offer a new opportunity. It's like, oh, everybody hates intermittent fasting. They hate it because you have to, you can't eat. Well, we have this diet over here and uh, you can eat with it. So let's, let's tell them about this diet. It seems like a good, you know, a good plan, right? That's the plan that Russell Brunson had. He, put, he got that battery in his back. His old business had collapsed. He made, you know, a lot of money in that business. And so he learned a lot about selling businesses or building, you know, creating businesses that catch like a wildfire. He knew a lot about selling those businesses, particularly from stage. I believe he's done multiple millions from stage up to this point in his life. And so he has this new idea because he realizes that people in the world have this problem, just like Bernie Sanders did. So people in the world have this problem. And see, he says, okay, I'm going to solve it for him. And he meet him and his team. It was like two and two other co-founders, Todd and Dylan, I believe it was. They get together and they start making ClickFunnels. And they spend months and months and months and months of their time making ClickFunnels. And they're sure like it's going to be the billion dollar idea that it's going to be. Um, and so when it comes time to actually create ClickFunnels, what most people don't realize is that ClickFunnels actually almost failed. What happens is Russell Brunson, he aligns this entire, like he calls it the Dream 100 strategy, which is an incredible strategy that everybody should use as the foundation of everything in his words and also in my personal beliefs. I don't have any experience with that, but listen. He creates this list of his colleagues, people who are in his industry, who has his target audience, who has people that he can sell to. Okay, and a bunch of them are having events. He's already made millions and millions of dollars selling from stage to every other product in the world. And he knows the people who are in those audiences, they hate websites and they need this ClickFunnels product. It's something unique, and so it'll automatically create a new market, right? That's the idea. And so he goes to the first event and he gets up on stage. I believe it was like a three-day summit or something like that. And he does this entire presentation that has worked every single time before. It's actually a script called The Perfect Webinar. He's telling this, he's doing this entire presentation and he's so excited and amped up to, to, to unveil this product and have people run to the back. You know, the way they do sales from stage, they announce the product at the end of the presentation and they run, everyone runs to the back of the room and they pick up the product. So he's doing all these sales from presentation and he says, so um, we have this product called Click funnels that'll meet all your needs and do everything that I just talked about. Isn't that amazing? And everybody's like, yeah, well, that sounds good, right? Right, yeah, whoa. You know, you ever do that before? You try to give somebody exactly what they asked for? And they just, they, you know, this is what happened. He said, okay, every, I think, I think this might have been a presentation. He ended like, okay, we have this product called ClickFunnels that is exactly what you, what everybody uh, wants. And I think he said, like, who wants a piece of that or something really, really strange. Watch his Secrets Masterclass. He talks about this in the Masterclass. And the funny thing is, despite it being a product that met their exact needs of what they asked for, despite it being a unique product in that moment, they didn't branch from that red ocean, the website market, and join his new market. He had a unique product, but the market wasn't created in that instance. Crickets. I think not a single person in the room got up to buy what is now a billion dollar software. Why is that? So you have a unique idea, you have a unique offer, but the market, the old market, isn't branching off and creating a new marketing community around it of people. It's not creating a mass movement around it. So why is that? He gets up on a stage with the same exact product he has now that's worth a billion dollars, and he pitches them on it, and no one moves. Have you ever experienced that? Like, this idea is just so good. Everybody, this idea. And they're like, this idea? And you're like, this idea, and they're like, this idea, and no one cares about it. That's what happened to him. So he was really embarrassed about it that day. He went to his hotel, and he didn't even return to the, the next two days of the event. He said he was in his hotel hiding, eating Haggadah's ice cream, because he tried to pitch in front of, I don't know, a couple hundred of people, and no one even moved. Even if it was just a numbers game, you would expect one person to move, but they were like, what? 
What are you talking about? But he goes home. He a trooper. He figures it's a fluke. His other co-founders are depending on him to, to bring in the bacon, to get this idea out into the world. Okay? And so he, you know, he has multiple events lined up because it's part of his Dream 100. Everybody's doing events, and these people have are the exact people he's trying to target. So he goes to the next event. La, this idea. No one moves, once again. And he goes to the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. He's flying all over the country trying to sell this idea. And I believe as he was telling the story, he was telling like, he was like the company, like they were getting very low on money. They were very strapped for cash. It was coming down to the wire and he had to absolutely sell this. Or like, he would probably, everybody would have to go back and get regular jobs. Like it, it, was, a, it was a dire moment. But for some reason, he couldn't pierce through their minds in a way that they understood. He had this unique thing that should have had a you know branched off and created a market, created a movement around it, but it wasn't happening. He wasn't sure why, and it wasn't until he went to this one uh, conference, okay, and he was standing there. I believe this was like literally before everything would fall apart. And he got up on stage and he begins to talk about this same exact product that he pitched to everything else. He didn't even want to go to this one. He was so embarrassed. But you know, uh, the speaker or uh, his friend who had him. You know, signed up as a speaker, said, Hey, look, man, I already told the people we're going to be there. Just please come and pitch ClickFunnels, please. And he wanted to tell the person that wasn't selling, but the person wants to just listen. He just wouldn't listen. And so he goes onto the stage this last time and he does the presentation the same exact way, except for a few minor tweaks that he made. And at the end of that, he said, Okay, if you want this product, everybody go to the back of the room. And there was a moment of silence. And everybody said, oh my God, idea. And everybody just runs to the back of the room and picks up the product and the rest is literally history. Fastest software as a service company, fastest growing software as a service company in human history. Over $1 billion valuation. $150 million in revenue every single year. Multiple millionaires created from scratch. What happened? What is the difference between his unique and new idea and yours? I say analyze this. So he was on a flight back to home. And he was wondering the same thing. And suddenly a feeling came over him and he realized the one tweak that he made that made most of the difference. He called his partners up and said, hey, I think I just figured out how to sell ClickFunnels. And so he began to go to these different you know, events and sell on stage and sell on stage and sell on stage and test out this message over and over and over again. And what he found out, the one tweak that made all the difference is he said, hey, everybody in the audience, you're probably using a websites. Websites are trash. Websites suck. You don't want to use websites. If you're using websites, you probably aren't selling, right? What you want is that you want click funnels. Click funnels is the next evolution. It's the sales funnels. For all these people having XYZ problems with your website, click funnels solved all of these problems. And that was the sales message that actually made click funnels sell. So what is the epiphany there? What is the light bulb there? What is the aha there that we've all been missing? Unique ideas do not create markets on their own. Unique ideas don't create movements on their own. Okay? So you might be wondering, okay, then what does? The thing that creates a new market around an idea is giving context to why that idea is unique. It's the message that says this idea is unique for these reasons. And the best way to make that context to foster that context is to contrast your idea to something else that's it i know that might not be understood right now but that is it right there and you'll see this as a theme throughout all sales persuasion or persuasion or any or sales messages or smart creation or any of that You have to contrast your idea to an idea that people are familiar with in order to give context to use uniqueness. Now we talked about, like think about even Blair Warren. Blair Warren's famous for his one sentence persuasion. One of the one sentence persuasion is, one of the pieces of one sentence persuasion is, you throw rocks at the red ocean, throw rocks at their enemies. So we talked about in another podcast episode, the three personalities of the red ocean. 
uh, the red ocean is the mainstream idea, the competitive idea that you want to, you know, you want to analyze in order to create your new market. The three personalities of that red ocean, like it's a mainstream idea, like like capitalism right now is a mainstream idea in America, uh, depending on where you are, and or or maybe if you're in uh you know if you're school, go to school, go to public school, go to college. That's a mainstream idea. That's the red ocean. What everybody's already doing, okay? Selling courses online. That's a mainstream idea. Dropshipping. That's a mainstream idea, okay? And so what you want to do is you want to look at the mainstream idea, look at the personalities of that red ocean, that red idea. The three personalities are the people who absolutely love that, the people who are wishy-washy, and the people who hate that opportunity more than anything. People who love going to college. Some people love going to college, okay? Some people love the system that we're already in, okay? Uh, and some people are like, eh, if it's a lower price, if it's more convenient, they'll do all this mathematics. Those are the people, those two personalities of the Red Ocean, you don't really want to bother with them. And then there are the third personality of the Red Ocean that absolutely hate the vehicle that they're in. Okay, they hate the vehicle that they're in. They hate the red ocean. They hate the market that they're in. But they have no other alternative. Okay, it's like me going through schooling and then having to go to college, and I'm like, I hate this. And then somebody pops up on my timeline. You want to target the person that hates the red ocean because they require no convincing. When as soon as the first entrepreneur popped up on my timeline and said, Hey, you could be an entrepreneur. You don't have to go to school. I jumped out of that red ocean so fast into the blue ocean and tried to learn everything I could about it. I literally did not make it past my freshman year. I dropped out. You know, certain people hear that message and they're like, oh, I don't really care. But here's the thing. The people in that red ocean that hate that opportunity, they don't love your opportunity. They're not familiar with their opportunity. They don't understand your opportunity. The only thing that they know is that they hate what they do know, is that they hate what they're already in. And so if you want to pierce all the noise that's trying to attract their attention, all you have to do is to say, hey, I hate what you're into. Because that contrast, I hate what you're into, it's bad, gives context to what, they, what you want them to move towards. If they understand, okay, what you're positioning, what, what, what you're giving them if you're positioning that as the opposite of everything that they hate, then they have no choice but to come on over. There'll be no resistance involved whatsoever. Okay, and you'll see this done a lot online with people who have mass movements. 10X, 10X. Hey, can we get a 10X? Grant Cardone, think about Grant Cardone. There's the red ocean of real estate investing. Okay. You can do a lot of things in real estate investing. You can invest in commercial units, you know, like stores and things like that, plazas, malls. You can invest in a single family house. And a lot of people, a lot of people uh, invest in single family houses. You can invest in multifamily real estate units. You can invest in all types of real estate around the world. Land. And so these are all in their own right now on the internet, red oceans. Or, or they've been red oceans at one point in time. So what does Grant Cardone do to make people invest with him and his capital, Cardone Capital? You know, they, they, they do syndication, which is like he pulls up people's money and he invests in the deal with them and they get a return on their payment as time goes on. It's a little complex of an idea, but I still don't understand it myself either. But what he does is this. He says, hey, we do multifamily apartment units. You know what's trash? He says time and time again, a single family home is not an investment. So much so, I, I believe that. I believe that like 100%. I would never buy a single family home as an investment because of rent. Do I know anything about real estate? No. But I trust and I believe Grant Cardone. And the people who bought houses and had, you know, they were tenants and landlords and they took care of those houses, you know how hard they jumping on, you know, you know, come on now. They absolutely loving this message. The people who, and, once, you, once you're done with that red ocean, he moves on. Stocks are trash. Stocks is just a piece of paper. And he says these things. And so he throws rocks at the red ocean to contrast and have people come over to this new blue ocean. That's an important idea. The, the idea that I'm trying to express right now is that in order for your idea to be unique, you have to contrast to something. They won't understand a unique set of features. Your uniqueness is emphasized 
and given real context when you contrast it to something that they already hate. You can't say, oh, you're on an intermittent fasting diet. Guess what? Got a keto diet. They're going to say, oh, another diet. Oh, another diet. They, what you, the way you want to approach that situation is, hey, you know, an intermittent fasting diet. Yeah, it sucks, right? You, you know, you didn't lose no weight, right? Yeah, I didn't lose any weight. Yeah, I hate that dieting sucks. You want to know this new thing that I do that's not dieting and not keto or not intermittent fasting? It was called it's keto, man. You don't gotta, you don't gotta do nothing. You don't gotta do all that. Whatever you doing over there, I don't even know. I, I, I hated that when I tried it. Look, man, it, it's no wonder. Like, I, man. I have never seen somebody have success at all trying to diet. It's funky. Go and try this over here. This 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 hooked me up. I failed with that intermittent fasting. I failed with the carnivore diet. I failed with vegetarian and veganism. I failed with all those things, man. These people saying, you know, protect the animals, man. Animals don't even got rights. Come on now. We we over here. Like we 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 doing this new thing. You know, now obviously that's you know satire and the most part I think animals do have rights in the real world, but the idea is the contrast through throwing rocks at that red ocean okay now that's a super important idea but it's a little bit contradictory of an idea because we want to go back in time what are the two paradigms that I talked about at the beginning of this uh, podcast episode the two paradigms are the comp- competitive mindset the self-serving mindset and then it's the collaborative and empathetic mindset, right? And if I'm not mistaken, you know, the three parts of a mass movement is the charismatic leader, the leader, the attractive character, it's the future-based cause, and then it's the new opportunity. But I'm saying if you want to create a mass movement, you know, and you need that one component, the new opportunity, you have to compete. Hey, Retro, how does that make any sense? You just said competition, being competitive, being self-serving will never, ever breed a mass movement that is successful. But now I'm saying it's part of the ordeal. Okay. Now, here's one thing. I remember when I was in, uh, what, what year was this? A 10th grade, a 9th grade or something, ninth grade summer, sitting there in my house, bored out of my mind. And I remember stumbling upon, I was probably watching Hodge Twins at the time. And uh, I stumbled upon this video by uh, R, you know, his name is R.S.D. Tyler, Owen Cook, one of the people I look up to and think is a genius in their own right, one of the greatest human beings of all time. Sorry if you can hear this water I'm drinking, but he was in the video, he was in his video walking through like the Redwood Forest in his like red bubble jacket or something like that, or he was in Washington or something like that. And I remember just thinking, man, this dude is bald and he looks funny, you know, but he's talking, he's talking about, I mean, he was a pickup coach back then, he's more self-help now. Um, but he was talking about all these different things, and you know, and I, I was just interested. I remember, I, remember that, I think the th- first video I ran to him was the th- you know three layers of motivation, the three levels of motivation, and um, you know, from there, I, I don't know what it was, but I was just insanely curious about the entire subject matter overall. So I subscribed to him. I started listening to video after video after video after video after video, and I remember watching him in one of these particular videos. I think it was a video where he was in Washington. It was rainy and things like that, so it must have been Washington. All y'all have is the ocean and the clouds over there. Y'all don't really have anything else. Don't pretend. Edward Cullen. Got Edward Cullen. Yeah, y'all got Edward Cullen. Come on now, y'all. Okay, okay. Give a little credit. Y'all got a little something. Got Edward Cullen. <laughs> but I was watching this video. And he was talking about, you know, the paradigms that you move through in order to become great at self-help. I don't remember necessarily, because this was years ago, I don't remember necessarily, like, what he was talking about specifically. I think he was talking about in terms of, like, game. Like, you know, it's you have one paradigm where it's like, oh, it's all about the technique, bro. It's all about the, the way you spit game. It's all about the moves you do, because there's, like, they call that outer game, okay? Like, the things you do. And then he was talking about the other paradigm that you move to. Like, which is inner game, which is being a better person. It's uh, working on yourself and things like that. And one of the things that he said that stuck to, you know, stuck with me to this day that I, I just put it in the back of my mind, even though I had no reason to, was that when you advance from one paradigm to the next, you retain the paradigm in some sense that you left in the first place. Okay, and so if you reverse back in time, even to this particular point in time, this is all in hindsight, how I'm putting all these different pieces together. This was insane to me. I remember first year starting out wrestling 
And my first wrestling, uh, I remember this guy named Coach G, uh, Ray Gorskowski. We called him uh, Coach God. But I assure you that wasn't his real name. But uh, it might have been. But Coach G, I remember coming out of the gym one day. He was following closely behind me. So close, his belly might have been touching me. You know, <laughs> shout out to Coach G. If you know Coach G, you know. Uh, I'm sorry if I messed up the volume right there. Yeah, I know. But I'm body shaming Coach G. And, uh, <laughs> man, he flamed me a bunch of times, man. I ain't, I ain't got, I'm not pulling no punches with that one. You know, he's, he's, he was my first coach in life overall. He really, really did a lot for me. I wish I could. I seen him one time, uh, my junior year, and he was talking to me. He caught me in the lobby or something like that. And I was just telling him, I, you know, how he helped me so much. I thanked him for getting me into the sport because I went from that year, the only year he coached me there, 9 11, to that year. Uh, nine wins, eleven losses. So that year, he called up to me. I was undefeated. I was on a roll. I was projected to be the best in the county, and then I failed off. But I remember catching him, and he was just saying, "Man, I heard you. You tearing him up. You're doing a good job." That moment meant a lot to me. So shout out to Coach G. You know, shout out to Coach G. You can't beat me in a wrestling match now, so don't even try it. But you know, shout out to you anyway, <laughs> Coach. You know, I love. Him. But so the story I was talking about was um. I remember going to the wrestling for the first time because he said, hey, come, you should try out for wrestling. I missed the first day of practice because I didn't have what I called a leotard, which is actually called a singlet. But, uh, you know, I remember going to his office like, Coach, yeah, I didn't show up for the first day of practice because I couldn't find a leotard anywhere. Like, and he was like, you talking about a singlet? And I'm like, yeah, a singlet. I, I don't have one. Where am I supposed to get one? He was like, we provide them for the matches. Don't worry about it. Just come to practice. And I came to practice that next day after school. I remember uh, wrestling uh, Joshua Cox. I don't know. Joshua Cox. Young guy, uh, he was a year ahead of me, he was a sophomore at the time, and I remember him, I remember wrestling Boss Boss, and we were wrestling in the corner, I didn't know anything about wrestling, and so I was just, I was I was trying like L's and like arm bars and things like that, and he was getting so, uh, he was getting pink, like he was mad at me I guess, and he, veins popping him, him and Boss Boss hated me like for three years after that, or maybe they just looked like they hated me, you know, not everybody has the best looking face in the world, so, huh? Well you're on a roll tonight. Yeah, I am on a roll, but... <laughs> You know, dude was mad at me. Uh, I'm joking, but Joshua, he, we were partners, I think, uh, his senior year, my junior year. Um, Boss Boss was real cool, too. He looked like Bruno Mars. Um, but I remember I was 115. These were the, They were like 120 or something like that back then. And so we were wrestling. I was trying to armbar them, all that type of stuff. And then, you know, the, they, after the practice, they were like, man, you can't do that. That's illegal. You shouldn't do things like that. And I remember that was the first wrestling lesson I got because I believe that practice – they taught me like the fundamental breakdowns of wrestling, like the, the the foundation of it all, which was, you know, number one a double leg. But even before that, you want to get in stance, okay? So they taught me how to how to how to get in my stance, okay? And so um, the first day and the first week or something like that, we learned like like the amateur stuff, like the, the regular stuff, the foundational stuff that everybody should learn. We learned, you know, how to get in your stance, how to throw a headlock, you know, how to hand fight, how to get a collar tie. All that you know, structural things like how do you how do you get in position, and then from there I remember the next week we started to learn like moves, and um, so the first couple moves we went into were obviously the you know the moves that you learned at the beginning, you know, single legs, double legs. A lot of my memory on this stuff is spotty, which is kind of sad. I wish I could go back and do it again, but kind of spotty. Single legs, double legs, fireman's carries, and I remember I started learning these moves, and I would go into the wrestling matches or the wrestling at practice really because we hadn't had any matches at this point, and I would just go into a double leg. And every time I went to a double leg, one, I would be blocked, and two, I'd be taken down. And I did it a bunch of times. The coach came over and started yelling in my face, like, uh, like Dallas, uh, you don't want to go into a double leg. Every time you go into a double leg, you're coming up out of your stance. And I'm like, I'm trying to do the freaking move. I'm trying to do a takedown. What do I need a stance for? And he's like, look, at all times in a wrestling match, you want to be in your stance. You don't want to deviate out of your stance. And at this point in my time, I was just, I didn't even know what I wanted from wrestling. I was just in the room just doing stuff. But he said, at all times, you want to be in your stance. Even when you do a double leg. See, when you do a double leg like this, you want to set up this, you know, do a move, your step, snap down. Uh, this is how you set up the moves. This is how you move somebody's body to get an angle, which wrestling is all about angles, which is, that's another episode I want to talk about. You don't go into re- fight resistance for resistance. Uh, it's what my co-host of this podcast, Rashad, actually talked about. Uh, but he didn't use the wrestling metaphor, so I'm gonna, you know, use the wrestling metaphor with that. But uh, you know, he said you don't want to go out of your stance when you do a double leg. You want to do a single leg and things like that. And I'm like, oh, so you always, 
always can block. You can always be in a, even if you, your move fails, you can come back up to your stance and they won't be able to take you down like they've been beating me up all day. And so the principle behind this entire thing was, look, as I was stacking on moves, as I was learning moves, as I was advancing through these different paradigms, I failed seriously when I left the paradigm behind that I had originally learned. So what is that to say? When you go and learn how to walk in your stance, you don't forget how to walk in your stance or how to do a, a, a little a, a duck walk, as they call it, a drop step. When you go into you're on the double leg, you build upon this knowledge, you build upon these informations. Okay, and similarly, if we bring it back, when you move from one paradigm to the next, like Owen Cook said, you don't forget how to be competitive and self-serving. You just add that on to the collaborative and empathetic mindset. And so this might seem contradictory, like how can you be competitive and self-serving and collaborative? Well, here's the thing. You can look at competition and self-servingness through a collaborative frame of mind. It's not that you forget these things that you were originated from. It's that you look at them from a different angle altogether. Okay? Because competition in the world is a necessity. Competition happens. How else do you get the best for the world unless you compete and compare product to product or idea to idea and test them over and over and over again? Okay? So what is the difference between looking at like competitive, being competitive and subserving and serving, self-serving from like a... Uh, from an unwell mindset and how do you when you go up to collaborative and empathetic thinking that paradigm and you become well how do you look at it now that you're looking at it from a well frame of mind well think of competitive and self-serving like this uh, competitive and self-serving usually is projected from a person when they're in an unwell state of being okay and so when you're in an un unwell state of being that unwellness it creates in the world a consumerist energy a destructive energy and no mass movement can build from that okay no mass movement can build from that destructive energy that destructive way you feel and so when you're uh, in an unwell state of mind you're competing you know, competing in self-serving because you want to be the best you want to you're, you're thinking about you like literally the only thing that you care about that's on your mind when you compete is serving you Okay, and so you'll th you'll see things like this throughout history, like uh, like the Crusades, like uh, the people who were Christians over there in England, you know, they were competitive and self-serving, but it was from an unwell place. It was it was it was given power through like the destructive and in, in uh, lower emotions like anger, grief, and things like that, you know, apathy. And so what you'll see is they'll go down and they'll wipe out the competition altogether. Think about people like Hitler, and this is why mass movements that are born from unwellness. You know, which is usually in a competitive and self-serving way, they don't last long. They usually fizzle out. Okay? You try to branch off from that old market and create a new market by destroying the old market. But literally these emotions, when you embody them, usually lead to self-destruction. Okay, so you'll be like Hitler, like, oh, let's uh let's um I don't know, we're we're mad at Jewish people, so we want to create a movement against them. And you'll use that negative and angry and, and hive mind energy to wipe out six million Jewish people. But then what will happen to you? The karma of that energy that you put out in the world will come back and womb to crush you. Okay? That's looking at it from a, a that's coming from, that's being self-serving, competitive from an unwell, unwell point of view. But think about mass movements that have happened in history that didn't come from that point of view. Oh, we hate. Let's say Martin Luther King, for example. That's a perfect example. When Martin Luther King hits the streets, right? Hits the streets. He's competing against all the people who think that the black people shouldn't have rights. But he's looking at it in a completely different way. He's not competitive and self-serving like, we're the ones, we want to be glorious. He's competitive in a way like, okay, I feel happiness. I feel peace in myself. And I'm competing against the unwellness and the negativity of the opposing group. You know, he's not thinking we want we want what we want, we want to win, we want to he's like, okay, this group of people, we're gonna compete with you to destroy the things that are harming you. It's not, oh, we want to destroy you because you feel differently. It's we're gonna destroy the beliefs and ideology of your side because we want to save you. You look at it from an empathetic point of view. 
And so I guess it's not competitive and self-serving, it's competitive and empathetic. Instead of discarding that entire paradigm, you simply merge it. You see what I'm saying? It's like Martin Luther King could have came up the street with the uh, in a club getting dubs, you know. I yeah, <laughs> I knew you was, that's why I had to say it. He could have came up the street like, hey, we got these ARs, you know, what you boys doing out here with them water cannons? And he could have sprayed the block. And guess what? They would have came back with the, with the shoddy and, you know, uh, good old Bernie Sanders wouldn't have been walking with them, you know, because it would have been it would have been havoc. It would have been murder in the streets, you know, like Kendall Lamar says. But instead, he comes up the street and he says, look, I'm going to destroy this movement. I'm going to throw rocks at this organization. I'm going to throw rocks at this, this Red Ocean because I truly believe that the people in the Red Ocean, he's collaborating with them even in his competition. He's competing with this idea. He's collaborating with them. And he's like, we, but we want to bring you, we want to save them. We want to bring them over to this thing that's beautiful. He's competing with the idea of empathy in his mind. He's competing while empathizing. I, I know it's kind of like jumble, but does that make sense at all? You know, it's kind of like a new concept to me even. I'm, I'm trying to digest it as I'm speaking, but like, that, like that's the idea. Like you want to compete but the idea is not like, oh, I want things for myself and my people. You're competing with the idea of purging out the negative so that you can get good for all. It's like uh, Russell Bruns. He was dealing with, uh, you know, he's a wrestler and he's a sportsman, just like a lot of entrepreneurs and people who have ideas. You got a competitive bone in your body. And business, no, like, no other thing, is, is a competitive field. And so, you know, naturally you want to beat everybody else. So he has this company, ClickFunnels, but he has... Uh, other companies in his domain after a while that are funded like I think they had like $200 million of funding between them and they were starting from scratch they were starting from zero and so while he's coming up and he's, he's building click funnels he sees these lead pages in Confusionsoft I mean Infusionsoft he calls them Confusionsoft because he, he's throwing rocks at them he thinks it's funny and he's trying to beat them he's saying all these all these things about them he's trying to you know push them out of the market like he's he's He's, he's trying to destroy their company more or less and it came to the point where he passed lead pages and then he passed Infusionsoft and the Infusionsoft CEO called him up and was like why do you hate us why are you trying to destroy us you know why don't you like us and Russell Brunson was like what are you talking about I don't not like you you know I'm just you know that's 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 the realm we're in we're just competing like you know it's no hate or no vitriol behind it, it, it this is just the nature of what we do you see there was no negativity behind him he was competing because of this competition, this back and forth between these two companies, he knows will drive the best product to the top of the marketplace and everybody benefits. He believes that everybody who works for Infusionsoft, everybody who works for Lead Pages, everybody who subscribes to these things, he wants to destroy the idea of that company because he believes that rising tide will raise all ships, that it will be better for everybody else involved. Okay? And so you'll have ideas, these extremely unique ideas. But how are you supposed to build a marketplace for it if you can't compete with the Red Ocean? The idea is this, you never stop competing. We'll always compete to the day we die. That is the nature of us. But you're gonna compete from a higher paradigm. You're competing from a different mindset. You're competing with the idea that you wanna save everybody from the thing that's consuming them, the thing that's making their life miserable. You're not competing because you're angry at them and you wanna destroy them and you wanna make an example of them. You're literally, in a way, your competition with that field is a collaborative effort, perhaps even against their will, to make everyone else's lives better. And it's important that you want to come from that, you know, you know that you're competing from unwellness or wellness by the emotion that you embody behind your actions. It might look the same from the outside looking in, but what type of place are you coming from? Are you coming from a place of sympathy? You know, you're happy and you want them to be happy and you don't understand why they aren't. Are you coming from a place of joy? Like, man, this is amazing. Y'all suck, man. Join over here. I hate what y'all doing. Come over here and join us. What you doing? Suck. Let's have a good time. What place are you coming from with the actions that you're putting out? Because a unique, but, but, but that's an important part. You have to attack the Red Ocean. You have to contrast it. Let them know what the contrast is so that you can funnel off the people who hate the opportunity that they're already in, they hate the vehicle that they're in, to your new vehicle. And so that you can make enough noise to actually reach those people who are maybe loving of that vehicle or wish-washy about transitioning over in the first place. You have to attack it. But it's just 
so that everybody wins and to add context by contrasting. And that's how your movement becomes prominent. You know, he jumped into the market, he says, we hate websites. And he jumped into the market, he says, we hate lead, soft, lead pages, we hate confusion soft, infusion soft. I can't even say the name right. I've heard this so many times. It's ridiculous because unique ideas do not create markets on their own. Steve Jobs and Apple, they have the hottest tablet on the market. They might even be credited with creating the idea of the tablet. Is that true? I don't know. They might be credited with creation of the idea of the tablet. But you know something that's funny? And I learned this from the book Play Bigger. Uh, I don't know who the book's by, but this is an insane book. It's all about uh, creating the new opportunity, which is part of the creating a mass movement. They said, literally, Apple wasn't even remotely one of the first people to create a tablet. They weren't even the first people to create a smartphone with a touchscreen. Same way, Facebook wasn't the first social media website, nor was MySpace. It was something called Friendster. These ideas were unique and ahead of his time. Someone created a tablet long before Steve Jobs did, but you know what they did? They didn't make a new opportunity. They didn't contrast it to anything and add context to their new opportunity and new market there for. I think they called it a keyboardless laptop. Yeah. You're still in the same red ocean. You're still competing with everybody. You're still in the laptop domain. You didn't create a new opportunity and say, hey, is your laptop bulky? It sucks, right? You didn't give context and therefore build a movement in a market around your idea by contrasting it to what already existed. You know, they got in the market, they say, hey, we got these touch screens, man. Touch screen cell phones. You're just another cell phone with a gimmick. But you know what's not a cell phone as far as I'm concerned? An iPhone. You know what's not a cell phone as far as I'm concerned? A smartphone. You know what's not a car? A smart car. You want to create the next evolution and make sure that it's known that it's the next evolution by throwing rocks at that which already existed. And you create these ideas on the opinions of the people who hate what has already existed. Okay? And uh, that's, that's all I'm trying to say in this episode. That's really all I'm trying to say. Now, you might think, man, from the first few episodes you might listen to, you might think, man, I need to come from a collaborative and empathetic frame of mind at all times. And that means I can't compete with anybody. That means I shouldn't say anything bad about anybody. But that's not exactly true. You take the paradigms that you grow past, you take them with you. That's all I have to say. But you might think of them and feel them from a different perspective altogether once you made it to the other side. Boom. So just to end this episode out, because that's pretty much all I have to say. I'm sorry if I bumbled through that. If you want to hear these thoughts in a more clear and structured way, you might not actually hear this thought, but this is pretty engineered from multiple different sources. It's kind of original in a way. I'm proud of myself. But if you want to hear more about what I'm talking about, this is where I learned the three components of the mass movement. There's a free book called Expert Secrets, the greatest book of all time in all regards. You can get that book for free. All you have to do is pay shipping and handling down in the podcast notes. I really recommend you go get this book. Best thing on the market, man. For absolutely free. Um, but yeah, that's all I really have to say, man. I appreciate everybody for listening. This is Dallas from the Grand Design Podcast. The podcast is all about pushing your ideas out into the world in the form of mass movements. If you haven't, subscribe and rate this podcast and leave a cute little note for me to read when I'm on the toilet. And yeah, man, I use the toilet at least twice a day. So, you know, send me and I'll, I'll read it, really. And uh, other than that, man, yeah, those are the two paradigms. And you want to move from one to the next, but you never forget what you came from. When you do the double legs and single legs in wrestling, you got to remember to stay in your stance. Keep your head low. Keep your head in front of you. In life, man, it's a scramble. It's a wrestling match. You're going from opponent to opponent. Keep your head low. Keep your hands in front of you. And when you learn new moves, never forget to defend yourself by doing those things that you learned in the beginning. Okay? That's pretty much all I have to say. Do you have any, you want you want to conclude on, on any particular note before we go to the outro music? Ooh, download Zuba. Yeah, uh, download Zuba. <laughs> it's this it's this app. She got me playing this app called Zuba. It's like it's yeah, you like, want to um, explain it? It's like Fortnite, except it's for kids. But mm-hmm. I can't really play Fortnite, so 
I play Zuba and I still get beat up by kids. <laughs> and if my mic malfunctioned, I didn't say explain it. I said you want to explain it. I want to make that clear because you know you, that's how you talk to people. You don't but, tell me what to do. Yeah, I don't tell her what to do. But yeah, she said it's like Fortnite. Like how Fortnite is for kids, it's like for adults. You know, it's this game. No, it's not for adults. Fortnite is for adults. Oh, Fortnite for adults? Yeah, I mean, it's not like for adults. Kids play, but it's like a smaller map and with like cute like animal characters, but it's like not easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can pick up guns. Yeah, it's deathmatch. Bow, Bow and arrows, bombs. It's, it's, it's a fun game. I've been playing it all day when I probably shouldn't have been. But uh, I probably, if I remember, I'll put a link to Zuba in the, uh, in the <laughs> podcast notes. I'm not going to get paid for that at all. I just think it's fun. All right. Um, other than that, man, this is Dallas from The Grand Design. This is Alexis also from The Grand Design. Peace out.